This is Mapping Healthy Minds, a podcast that explores the intersection of mental health and real life. I'm Justin Lewis. I'm your host and a licensed marriage and family therapist. On today's episode, I will be talking with Dr. Dan Wan. Dr. Wan is a professor of psychology at Murray State University, teaches, has been teaching there for um, many years now. And he uh, specializes and is the go-to for sports fan psychology. He's been on uh, the big networks like ESPN, ABC, those sort of things, talking about how people's fandom in sports impacts their day-to-day life and why they may be so into following team sports. So he and I will talk about how those things play out. We'll talk about why people are so invested in certain teams, and we'll talk about how that level of investment impacts their day-to-day life. So um, in addition to that, we'll talk even a little bit about why parents are so crazy at Little League games. Before we get into the interview, I do want you to know that podcast is brought to you by the SIVA Distance Project, and it is a combined effort with the running community and SIVA Fitness Academy to promote healthy and effective running practices. As distance runners, our focus should be towards training methods that keep us on the road with a continual sense of progress, while at the same time training to become less injury prone. The SIVA Distance team consists of talented coaches, sponsored ambassadors, and members like you who love to run with purpose. Across the country and the world, runners share a common bond for this endurance lifestyle, and the project is founded on the energy of that very camaraderie and shared enthusiasm. If you want to learn more about the SIVA Distance Project, Google SIVA Distance Project, and you'll get all the information you need about joining that. Mapping Healthy Minds is also brought to you by Compass Counseling. Here at Compass, we provide therapy services for people of all ages, uh, children, adolescents, adults. We do couples therapy and we provide those services in Owensboro, Henderson and Paducah, Kentucky. We also do telehealth services anywhere in the state of Kentucky. So if you are interested, then you can go to our website, compasscounseling.com. And now here's my interview with Dr. Juan. Some reason sports just covers almost all of society, it seems. In some way, yeah, we're and, and, go yeah it covers almost of all of society and in almost all societies. It's such, right. it's such a universal act, and you know, people are people are able to use it for, you know, ways to make themselves feel better. I mean, that doesn't mean that there aren't problems that come with sport because there are. <laughs> yeah. but, yes, uh, and we will know, go into it, all of those things, but let's take one step back here, and um, why don't you? just kind of provide a brief introduction of yourself and what um, you focus your work on. Sure. Um, Name is Dan Juan and I'm a professor of psychology at Murray State University. And I'm a social psychologist by trade. And what I've spent the last uh, roughly 35 years doing is looking at the social psychological side of sport, mostly that involving sport fans trying to understand why fans do what they do and feel what they feel and think what they think from a social psychological perspective and to figure out you know, the place of sport in the lives of fans and the place of fans in the world of sport. Yes. So super interesting topic. How I think at some point, everybody, whether they're a sports fan, whether they're married to a sports fan, whether they're observing people's behavior think, wow, that person's really into sports. That's crazy that they're into sports. And they may go as far as to say, I wonder why they like that sports team so much. Yeah. But you have gone 17 extra levels beyond <laughs> that with your work. So tell me how yeah. you got into uh, getting so in depth and doing research and publishing um, on this. Yeah, topic. so it's actually an interesting story. Um, one of our first exercises or assignments that I had in the doctoral program uh, in social psych at the University of Kansas, so this goes back to the fall of 1987, 
one of the very first things we were asked to do in one of our methodology classes was to come up with a testable hypothesis. And the night before that, as we were to meet in class and discuss these things, there had been a riot. I believe it was a soccer riot uh, that I'd watched uh, some news clips, probably on Sports Center or something about. And it just struck me that it seems that people that would do those things probably are really invested and identified with that sort of social construct of fan of that team. And so I walked into class the next day and, and the professor, uh, Dr. Nala Branscombe, who I have collaborated with on a lot of work since then, said, you know, what's your idea, Dan? And I said, well, I, I think that people that are highly identified with a sports team are probably the ones that are most likely to do these intense uh, reactions and affective responses and have these, you know, sort of biased cognitions. And I think that they're more likely to riot and stuff like that. And it was interesting because I thought, well, this is a cute idea. And she acted like it was the best thing she ever heard of in her entire life. And I was like, wow, okay. So I know I can have one good thought in grad school. You know, I'm not going to be over for grad school with good ideas at least. And yeah. so it just, it went from there. I mean, there was, it would be nice to say that there was some grand plan. You know, I had a dream or whatever. No, I just walked in with an, an idea I kind of thought of out of nowhere and it resonated with my, what turned out to be my, my doctoral mentor. Mm-hmm. And, you know, 35 years later, here we are. <laughs> I assume that was one of those uh, English across the seas soccer matches. Yeah, I, to the best of my recollection, again, there was probably a point in my life where I did remember uh, yeah. 35 years ago, that point has long since passed. Right. I would love to know because I often get asked that question, right? So right. what was that game? I don't, I don't know. I, it was soccer and I'm guessing it was European soccer. Right. But I, I'll just have to leave it as, as a guess at this point. <laughs> well, I can imagine because it seems like late 80s, 90s was really like the peak of hooligans, so to speak. Yeah. In uh, Great Britain and Europe and those areas. Um, and they tried to, since then, crack down on all that violence over in those uh, areas. But it does seem like from my kind of childhood remembering that that was uh, very much a thing where people would riot every game and get real violent. And so I can imagine yeah, it was the thing to do, right. You know, yeah. we would go to malls, then we'd go to soccer games and, you know, throw tear yeah. gas on the field, right. like chairs on fire. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think, I mean, obviously you're right. It's the identification because those team, every town had a team or every right. part of London had a team or, you know, so it very much was, um, akin to Murray State, a university kind of situation that we've got. You know, you get tied in. I was a Murray State student. You get really that um, identify with your school. You know, if you're right, and and, and over there, you know, they yeah. can take it to such another level, right? Oh, for I sure. Mean, so, I mean, we you know we get tied in because well, I went to school there, I grew mm-hmm. up there. Over in in Europe, a lot of it has a religious basis, mm-hmm. a geographic basis, a family basis. You know, we people always wonder, you know, so in my sport fan psychology class, sometimes early on, a student will ask me, so, you know, which team has the most diehard fans? And my response is, well, we don't know. But one thing we do know, they're not residing in North America. I mean, we think we've, got, <laughs> right. we've cornered the market on, on you know, over-the-top fandom. Right. Gosh, you know, we're, we're, we're not even the JV of that kind of stuff. <laughs> Right. By the way, how long have you been teaching that uh, sports? This is my 31st year at Murray State. So starting 35, 31 years at Murray State. And I've been teaching the psychology of sport fandom class for probably 22, 23 years, maybe. So I don't know how I made it through Murray State without teaching that class or knowing about that class or taking that class. But it's like my biggest regret. I can't believe I missed it. It's like in life, yeah, we think we know every option that's in front of us, you know? Right. We don't know, well, what, yeah, we don't, no, we don't mean, know what we don't know. And I'm thinking, exactly. how did I not hey, know that? Listen, I took every I took every single psych class, Baker University, my undergraduate institution offered in psychology, every one except for one. Yeah. I took 45 hours of psych, every class except for one. I didn't take social psych. I didn't know social psych existed until yeah. I was in a clinical grad program bored on a Friday night, reading a social psych text going, Oh, that's the stuff I like. So right. yeah, 
you're not alone. We often miss the things that, you know, would have jumped out and been quite attractive to us. We don't know what we don't know, right? Exactly. So you, let's talk about your personal sports fandom then. See how this might uh, relate. I think uh, in some email correspondence, you share that you're a Cubs fan. Yep. Right as well. I'm a Cubs fan. Yep. Um, Do you feel the need to identify with a struggling sports team to get credibility? For, for this I, sort of I, thing, like if you yeah. follow a team that won all the time, would people be like, "Really, Doctor Juan? I mean, you can't really understand this team identification need for you know, like loyalty. Your team wins all the time, right? Yeah, front runners, right? We we <laughs> yeah. don't like front, we don't like front runners. Right. It, it's interesting that, and I don't know your experience as, as a Cub fan, but when I'll talk to other Cub fans, oftentimes they will ask you. Well, when did you start following the Cubs? Oh, and if sure. you say after 1984, when they first uh, made the playoffs, the, the, the Ryan Sandberg years, then people, they'll, they'll discount it, right? Well, you haven't suffered, <laughs> right? You don't know what is, you weren't there in the 60s and the 70s when, you know, we were atrocious. Yeah, it's, it's funny. I think that. Well, that, that deadline has changed a little bit. Yes. As time's gone on, obviously. Uh, to more like 2016, 2015. Well, right. And, and it's interesting that, you know, they, they did some research and, and they found that like 25% of Cub fans weren't really excited to find out that the Cubs were going to win the World Series because they believed that part of the allure, the lore of being a Cub fan was truly that identity as the lovable loser, right? right. That, you know, what sets me apart as a fan is that, you know, I know I know how to suffer. Right. And (laughs) so many fans thought I'm going to lose a part of who I am, at least relative to this fandom. I'm going to lose a part of who I am if they win the world series. And I'll be honest, I am not as big a cub fan as I was prior to 2016. It's almost like, okay, Finally, against all of the odds that are out there in the sports world, somehow they not only managed to get to the World Series, but they won the World Series. And it was almost a sense of, okay, um, I don't have to care about that quite as much as I did. And and I don't think all fans share that perspective, of course, Mm -hmm. but there is a decent subset who do that once the team has reached the pinnacle, they can say, okay, maybe now I don't have to care quite so much as I did. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I had a lot of people ask me that question whenever they won. They're like, well, now what they won. And my answer was always, well, I want them to win again. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Like to, to me, it's the never enough problem. Right. right. That, that was kind of always my thing was the, Oh yeah, that was cool. Now they need to win this year too. And that's the, that's one of the sports fandom problems I think. Is no, right. Always, that's exactly right. You, you, you can never be, you can never be satisfied and sports fans have a tendency to get accustomed to continued success, right? So you look at the Atlanta Braves, their heyday a couple of decades ago, yeah. they won the, the division like 14 straight years, some yeah. crazy record. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't even sell out the playoff games in Atlanta, right? <laughs> yeah. Their fans like, wake me when you get to the world series. Like we we've done this, right? The, the, the playoffs, <laughs> that's last year's and the year before that's every other year's news. Let me know when you're one game away from winning the championship. Wake me up then. They weren't selling out playoff games. And then you think of these, you know, historically uh, deprived franchises that can't even sniff a pennant race, let alone a home playoff game, had to drive those poor fans crazy. We just get accustomed to the success. Mm -hmm. If it's expected, it's just not as, it's not as enjoyable. Right. Exactly. I mean, that's just, a life principle, right? So right, it's human nature. Human nature is, you know, I've got my front row parking spot every time. Where's my front row parking spot? Versus, wow, I finally get a front row parking spot. I mean, it's anything. Exactly. Right? Yeah. Exactly. Yeah, that's right. So one place I wanted to go with this um, is the team identification piece when it comes to a possible way that if your team is good or winning or, you know, Cubs fans in 2016, 17, how is that kind of a sense of, or maybe Kentucky basketball fans is one way we could go with this. Like how might that impact 
your day-to-day life, like how you treat someone else. Like if your team won the night before, how you're going to treat somebody um, at work. Even if they're yeah, not in the, even if they're not like, uh, even if it's not exactly. like a Louisville fan, it could be like anything. Are you going to walk anything, around more confident? Any, any, and it doesn't even have to be a fan, right? right. Just, just anybody. Anybody. You're going to walk anybody. around more confident, feeling a better sense of like you it's, accomplished something yourself when yeah. obviously you didn't. It's so interesting because we, we have a tendency to downplay the impact of sport on human nature. We, we really do. I think mm-hmm. that, the, that the lay person out there, and probably rightly so, the lay person out there uh, just sort of naturally thinks of, of sport and fandom for sport as, you know, these people, they like these teams because their their family did or they live there or whatever, and it's a nice diversion or it's a cute little pastime, but, you know, there's not really any substance there as far as the psychology side. I'm telling you, in the last about decade, that's what we figured out is that there's so much more here. You know, it's interesting that I, I used to always sort of qualify what I did. People say, you know, wow, you, you've got all these publications and you've talked to these people, and blah, blah. And I would always say, yeah, but I'm not curing cancer. I kind of downplay it. I don't do that anymore because what we're really seeing now is that sport fandom, it does matter. It, it helps to meet basic innate human psychological needs. It has such a large impact on our day-to-day life, ways that are, are truly remarkable. So for example, we know that in areas where a team has been successful, productivity in businesses in those areas is higher wow. because happy people work harder, sure. right? We, we know that um, when a local team is successful, that has really a nice positive ramifications for local politicians because we like the status quo. And if the status quo is going well, hey, my college football team you know, won this critical uh, rivalry game. I like life. It's worth like three to five percentage points for the incumbent, right? Oh, wow. it, it's fascinating that you, you uh-huh. wouldn't think, right? It, it, you would say, well, it's just sport. Yeah, but it matters so much to people. That their, their identity is wrapped up in it so, so strongly, so deeply. It's, it's so central to who they are that the affective, the emotional consequences of that team's performance and their membership in that fan group is so great that it doesn't just impact their life within sport as a fan. I mean, certainly if you go to a game and they win, you're happy, you're more likely to go to another game whatever. That's not right. interesting to me. What okay. I think is amazing is afterwards, when you go to the restaurant, you're more likely to tip well, because you're <laughs> not because you didn't go to the restaurant and the food is better. You're tipping better because man, we just beat our rival in basketball Life is and good. I'm in such a great mood. To me, that is absolutely fascinating. They did a colleague of mine, Ed Hurt, several years ago, did a study at the University of Indiana and they had individuals watch Indiana win or lose a, a college basketball game. And after they lost, they were so, you know, sad that they were so lacking in confidence, not in terms of their team, not in terms of their fandom for the team, but life in general. It's so like when they would ask them, do you think that this uh, member of the opposite sex would like to go out with you on a date? No, that person would never want to date me. It, it, it just completely <laughs> altered their perception of life. Wow. It, it matters in ways that are astonishing. And so that's why I don't, I don't qualify what I do anymore. I think uh-huh. that we figured out in the last 10, 12 years that this stuff has implications for uh, humanity far beyond what we thought. So I'm sitting here thinking about how that might apply to my work as a therapist. And I'm thinking maybe on the intake, I need to ask people what their sports teams are and how they're doing. <laughs> like doing so, marriage counseling with somebody. I need to be like, all right, so tell me about, <laughs> tell me about your favorite sports team. Where are they at the standings? When's the last exactly. time they won the championship? <laughs> exactly. So, it's almost so like a couple assessing. of, uh, yeah, no, I think you're right. A couple of comments to that. So my mentor at, at the University of Kansas, uh, Nyla Branscombe, I mentioned earlier, she was not at all into sport, right? She, she didn't right. understand the world of sports. She hadn't been socialized into sport. Uh-huh. So it was a great uh, research marriage because I was really into sport 
and I knew that side. Then she knew the, the social psychology side that I was just learning as a grad student. It was a uh-huh. really good, you know, symbiotic relationship. Uh-huh. And she was kind of feeling down uh, one day. I don't know, maybe the third year I was there. And I, she's like, yeah, I just don't feel connected to anybody. You know, I don't feel like I'm, I'm really getting out there and meeting people. I don't feel like I belong here because her first year at Kansas was my first year. So she was a new faculty member. And I said, well, you know, we've got this data that we've been accumulating that shows that people that are identified with the Kansas basketball team have, you know, higher levels of self-esteem, lower levels of loneliness, lower levels of, of alienation. You should go to the game. And she's like, you're, yeah. She's like, she couldn't afford because of the trees. It was right there for her, sure. right? And so that's what she did. And, and sure enough, it made a difference. The other thing I'll say, I had a grad student a few years ago that had an idea for a study. He, he never... He never put it together, but his idea was he wanted to see if, an, a, if a therapist's office, the paraphernalia in that therapist's office would impact the client's perception of the, what, skill set, oh, yeah, ability, uh, empathy of that therapist. And what he wanted to do was he wanted to have big UK basketball fans enter an office that was loaded with UK stuff or Louisville stuff sure. and see if, you know, if you're a UK fan and there's Louisville stuff everywhere, like, ah, this person's never going to understand me. They're not going to know what it's like to be me. We're never going to have a connection. You never did the study, but I think that what you're saying is right there, right? It's fascinating to me that yeah. we would use our sport fandom to judge the qualifications and qualities of a therapist. And I think you would be, you would be quite wise to ask them how that's going. And I say that because it matters that much to people. Uh-huh. People that come in to, to, to see therapists that are cranky sometimes, probably not the norm, but every now and then <laughs> they're probably cranky because team fill in the blank didn't perform very well last night. <laughs> well, let me, I'm going to, I'm taking this thinking about it personally now, not even professionally, but I'm thinking about the fact that the Cubs have sucked over the last couple of months, got rid of my favorite player. Totally. Well, of course they got rid of your favorite player. They got rid of every player. Pretty good. good. I mean, that that was the fire cell of all fire cells. I told a friend of mine, who's a big Cardinals fan. I said, look, I've been following the Cubs since 1967. This is the first time I've ever been embarrassed to be a Cubs fan. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. And I'm thinking, well, maybe, you know, I've been a little bit more irritable lately because I haven't watched a Cubs game because I'm so, like, frustrated with the team. Right. I've Yeah. So I went to New York, and normally I would uh, go to a, a visiting stadium just because I like baseball, right? Right. And um, Anthony Rizzo gets traded to the Yankees. And I was like, I'm not going to a Yankees game. I don't want to see my favorite player in another team's jersey. <laughs> I don't care about getting to experience some other stadium. Forget that. I don't want to watch Anthony Rizzo in a jersey. Yeah, but isn't that so fascinating at <laughs> a psychological yeah. level? Right? You, yes. you literally decided not to engage in one of your favorite pastimes because one of your favorite people was going to be at that pastime. <laughs> when else does that ever occur? Right? Yeah. Nowhere in life would you have person you love in place you love as a reason that you will not go, <laughs> go to the place right. that you love. Exactly. Because of the shirt they were wearing was not the one I wanted them to wear. Exactly. I mean, it, it's funny. And when I talk to people about these types of, of issues on Facebook and social media, I'll see, see people, you know, talking about sports fans and the crazy things that they'll do. And my tagline has been this for years and years and years. I'll just always type in, wow, somebody should study those people. <laughs> they, just, they just, we, we just do such crazy things. That's true. That's true. As my uh, friend likes to tell me, fan is short for fanatic. He likes to, to make that point sometimes. Absolutely. <laughs> I think about, you, you may have heard this Seinfeld joke before. It was part of his stand-up, I think, um, about how people root, we don't root for players, we root for jerseys. Right. <laughs> and like, he's, like the Cubs, right? It's like, um, I kind of disproved that a little bit by my Anthony Rizzo comment, but still it's like, 
or maybe I proved it actually. It was like, we root yeah. for the Jersey right? <laughs> right? more than we root for a person. Um, and that's kind of a odd sort of. Um, it, it is. It's interesting in because area. what happens then when it's the wrong Jersey. So, you know, okay. Rizzo goes to the Yankees and you're like, ah, that's, that makes you sad, but man, at least he's not, you know, playing first base. Like hard, exactly. Right. So I always exactly. think about, you know, I think about this situations like, you know, Roger Clemens. Oh yeah. You know? Oh yeah. I mean, there were people in yeah. Boston that they were naming their kid Roger. Right? And now he's pitching for the Yankees and winning awards and championships. Mm-hmm. And yeah, that's, and again, why, why we care is so fascinating. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, look at, uh, you know, college basketball coaches that, that used to coach at team a, and then they coach, you know, <laughs> they come back and coach at the, the rival. Yeah. Fascinating. It is. Uh, it kind of comes down to tribal mentality, right? I mean, we have, we see tribal mentality form in all sorts of pieces of life politics. Sure. We notice it a lot right now is like, well, this is my team. So anything that this team does is okay. <laughs> anything that the other team does is not okay. So we just more and more, sink into that tribal mentality um, justification. And you even see that with like the only people that would not be hard on Bobby or Barry Bonds were Giants fans. Exactly. Like they would cheer for him, but every other team stadium is going to boo Barry Bonds except for San Francisco because he is one of their own. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's the, the biases and the cognitive distortions of sports fans mm-hmm. but they have to do that right because in, in like tribal mentality with politics and everything exactly you know, my guy did I mean, this or my there's a winner and a loser weird. but their person did that it's weird my person did this it's not weird yeah exactly yeah you sport like politics has a defined winner and a loser yes right and and you know that going in mm-hmm. so you know going in that Look, when I'm done consuming this voluntary activity, no one's making them do this, right? When I'm done consuming this voluntary activity, there's a, roughly a 50-50 chance, maybe 40, maybe a 60, roughly 50-50 chance that I am not going to be a happy camper, right? Right, And and so there have to be ways for fans to get past the disappointment, the frustration, and the anger. So we have these distortions, right? That I mean, the poor San Francisco Giants fans with Barry Bonds, right? It's like the evidence was so clear that he had done steroids. It's like, here's a picture of him five years ago. Here's a picture of him now. He no longer has a neck, right? That's probably a hint. Right. But the, the Giants fans were like, well, but you don't know, you know. <laughs> or or the uh, everybody's doing it argument. Everybody's doing it, right? So the, the, Louisville ba- the Louisville basketball fan argument is, oh, right. everybody, everybody's uh, taking their players out and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Yeah, that's. Exactly. That's, uh, exactly. Right. They just, the, the old one, they just don't get caught. Yeah. You don't know. <laughs> they just don't get caught. Yeah. That's right. So maybe we're guilty, but everybody else is too. So that's okay. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So it's, it's a it's a push. It's just a push. Yeah. So uh, transitioning a little bit to kind of maybe not completely new under the sun piece of professional and even to some degree college athletics and how uh, fans react to this, but how social justice issues have infiltrated the game so much and fan reaction to that. So. Um, you know, there's NFL on their field has uh, marked some different things that are social justice issues on the helmets. They've got some things, um, you know, Colin Kaepernick was made the big splash. Baseball does a little bit of this. Um, yep. So this is more and more, uh, it kind of, maybe it spiked a little bit a couple of years ago and it's kind of leveling off now um, like things tend to do, but it's a somewhat new part of, um, sport and how fans might be affected. Do you have anything to say about uh, that kind of recent? Yeah, I think it's it? it's interesting that you know fans. I mean, not all, and probably the minority, but a fairly common uh, verbiage from fans is you've got to leave politics out of sport. Mm-hmm. You can't leave politics out of sport. 
politics are always inherently going to be in sport. You don't think that's true? Okay, good luck getting a new stadium funded. How do they fund that? <laughs> they got to go through politics to get that funded, right? right. I mean, how are you going to get a team? How are you going to get an expansion? You're probably going to have to have politicians making tax breaks for the people that want to bring their team to that, that city. Um, decisions, whether to or not to play ball games during World War II, after 9-11, Hurricane Katrina, uh, the Boston Marathon bombing. Mm -hmm. Those are all political issues, right? Sure. So the, you know, it's interesting. You need, people need to take politics out of sport and stand for the national anthem. That statement is politics, yeah. right? I'm not yeah. saying it's right. I'm not saying it's wrong. I'm just saying I, the, one of my interesting takes on this is how some fans have wanted politics out of sport, but they've always been in sport, right? And, and if yeah. you don't, you know, I actually was having a conversation with somebody about this and I said, you, and I gave them all those examples and they're like, well, I still don't know that that's true. And I said, you know, there are times where the United States didn't win any medals in the Olympics. And those decisions not to go were not from the athletes or the those are political decisions. Again, I'm not saying it's a right or wrong decision. I'm just saying those were decisions that were made politically to send a message to other countries. Politics are have always and will always be a part of sport and to think otherwise is you know either naive or biased or both i suppose mm -hmm. because those issues have always been there yeah yeah so with that being the case they're there is it overall a positive or negative impact by putting different things like that on the field yes <laughs> how about that it's a hundred percent a function of the individual fan sure. right Absolutely. I mean, the, the fan who is against um, the NBA using their platform for racial justice, that fan who doesn't want that, that's a net negative, right? The <laughs> fan who thinks that's great, that's a net positive. Now, the so research... Doesn't make a difference either way. Yeah, the, the, the research would suggest there are more people out there that think it's a net positive, but perhaps the people that think it's a net negative are more, are more vocal as fans. So, you know, you got this... You got this juggling act. I mean, I've, I've been asked to, to help out some professional teams on this issue in the past couple of years. And, it, you know, in a lot of ways, from their perspective, it's a no win scenario. Right. So yeah. if you've got if you got 80 percent of your fan base loving the fact that you're using uh, your team and your league as a, as a platform for uh, social justice, social equality, Awesome. But then if you find out that the 20% that are against that, they tend to be wildly adamantly against that. And they also tend to be the ones that are paying most for the tickets. <laughs> right. So you can make yes. the most people mad or the most money mad and that's lose, lose. Right. That's right. I think that then at the end of the day with the score, question is like, I guess the question asked then is like, what's the point of it? Right. Well, uh, and I think also, I would show? tell them, I would tell them, you're not doing this for today, right? You're, you're not doing this for today. You're not doing it for tomorrow, right? That takes a while to change a culture. Mm -hmm. It's so much easier to maintain a culture than to change a culture, mm -hmm. right? And so you know, don't focus on uh, today's, you know, gripe session among your fans. See where you are in a year. Right. See mm -hmm. if you're if you're changing that scale, that balance a little bit, mm -hmm. because that's usually what happened. You know, people were people thought that Monday night football was the dumbest thing anybody ever come up with. <laughs> and now you got to pay a gajillion dollars for the rights to have Monday night football as a, as a, a programmer. Right. <laughs> people thought that night games, who in the world would ever want to go to a baseball game at night? <laughs> well, guess what? You go to a lot of them at Wrigley Field now. Mm -hmm. Right. It, it, who in the world would ever have a baseball game inside? No, they all, well, I want to have all our games inside because I'm not going to worry about rain right out. <laughs> you know, it's, there's, there's always a transition. There's a change in sport that's often very slow. And I, I don't think you, you, you aren't smart if you judge 
the impact of the change on a day-to-day basis. You know, see where you are down the road. Be, mm-hmm. be a bit more uh, future vision oriented for those types of things. And, and time will tell. And so maybe that's why it feels like it's leveled out to me just because I'm growing accustomed to it versus the initial. Could be. Um, oh, this is new. Yeah, like we talked about winning, it could be something that we're just kind of now sort of accustomed kind to. Of conditioned or, to. Or, you know, maybe the dissenters got tired of griping. <laughs> there could be that too, I suppose. <laughs> that's true. Right? I don't hear as much griping. That, that's very possible too. I was just curious how that, your, your take on that, because I was, yeah. I was wondering kind of um, how that might impact, even if it has a positive or negative impact by doing that. So yet to be determined seems like the best answer. I think that's a fair statement. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. All right. So we're going to, um, we're going to go down. We're going to call, we're going to call ourselves down from professional to little league here for the next bit. <laughs> yeah. I'm going to tell you. Where the, where the real crazy fans reside. <laughs> exactly. yeah. And I'm going to start this with a personal story. Um, my first ever job was a little league umpire. So I'm uh, 15, 16 years old, right? Um, just trying to make sure these little kids have somebody that would call balls and strikes safe out. <laughs> right. Okay. So I'm umpiring a girl's uh, softball game. And back whenever, back in those days, they didn't have pitching machines uh, yet. So there were a lot more balls than strikes thrown. <laughs> yeah. And if you don't call, if you don't call the pitch off the play a little bit, you're going to be there all day just walking and walk from base. Yeah. To and if I'm re- reflecting back on my umpiring skills, I have no doubt that my strikes have increased as the time went on. Anyways. So that being said, this girl threw a ball. It was a strike. It was like right down the middle too. And so I called it a strike and this presumably dad just is all over me about my ball and strike calling ability in this eight, nine, 10 year old girl softball game. And I'll never forget that he, uh, he said that I needed to go to the Walmart school of umpires. So obviously he's out of his mind, just yelling. So thanks now, right? This is totally irrational. There's no Walmart school of umpires. He's just lost control. And he's yelling at this 15 year old about a nine year old softball game in which I called a strike that actually was a strike. Um, and so that has stuck with me for so long. Tell me about the research you've done about people that are willing to say to 15 year olds, you need to go to the Walmart school of umpires during a nine year old softball game. Well, I'll start by telling you that in the summer in grad school, I helped make ends meet by umpiring baseball. Okay, so you've been there. I've been there, done, been <laughs> yeah. there, done that, been yelled at. Yeah. Um, and my story is that I was umpiring a four-year-old girls' t-ball, and <laughs> okay. uh, yeah, and so you know, really, it's not umpiring; it's it's more babysitting, right? Oh my goodness! And and. and you know, all you do is you put the ball back to the, on right the base. Tee. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you, just, you hope they hit it and, you know, we take left turns. Yeah. And everybody knows how T-ball works, that everyone hits the ball, goes to a base, and then you just take turns. And then the last person hits and runs all the way around. Okay. Mm-hmm. Well, I was l- looking in the stands, and there was actually like four or five of the fans had these really fancy scoreboard uh, books, right? Mm-hmm. They were keeping score <laughs> for T-ball where er- – <laughs> Where every, and I'm thinking, man, all you have to have is the ability to count and add, and you're going to know. Well, we're playing three innings. You can draw a diagonal line. Players, you're good. Yeah. Yes, that's what they were doing. <laughs> and so I told the I told the league uh, administrator that, and like, yeah, that's clearly sending the wrong message. So they told the the parents, no, no scorebooks. The next game, I was out uh, at Park McCarr. It's about a fifty yard walk from the parking lot to the field down a, like a gravel dirt road. Mm-hmm. And there was a parent in the parking lot picking up rocks. I'm not going to judge people need hobbies, whatever. Uh, but uh, when I got there, I kept an eye on this person as a former Lily umpire, you know, that if someone has a pocket full of rocks, that's who you want to keep your eye on. Right. right. Well, I realized what this person was doing is every time a child on their team scored, they're putting a rock in one pocket and every time a child on the other team and they were pulling the rocks out and counting. And I'm like, 
Maybe I should learn more about sport fan perspectives from Little League. So what what we've done over the years, and and I've been highly involved in this. I I served on the the executive board of directors for the National Alliance for for Youth Sport for many, many years. Uh, They're the the nation's leading advocate for safe and positive youth sport experiences. Notice I didn't say non-competitive because competition can be fun and positive as well. Absolutely. Um, But uh, it's interesting how the same problems that it can occur in Olympic grandstands and NCAA football stadiums and, you know, high school fields and NFL fields and whatever fields, they're also there at the little league level. Mm-hmm. I mean, the same things as far as the verbal abuse and the, the pressure and whatever, but here's the thing, you know, we talk about, sports fans and their favorite, you know, NCAA team or professional team or whatever. And they're like, yeah, I just feel as though the people playing are my family and little league, they actually are (laughs) their family, right? I mean, you want to talk about high levels of identification. It's not like they identify with them as if they were their own kid. They are their own kid, right? I mean, it's just it, all of these factors that, you know, we know, sort of facilitate or, or predict uh, abuse at higher levels, they're just magnified mm-hmm. at the little league level. And I've just seen so many terrible things. I mean, I've, I've talked to, I've given a hundred plus presentations on this topic all over the place. And I, you know, there's always a story. Somebody comes up afterwards and tells me a story and <laughs> I, I never hear these stories without crying. I mean, they're just so awful what these kids had to go through. You know, the, 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 the 15 to 20 minute ride home after the game, you only live two minutes in the ballpark, but dad's going to drive around, you know, for an extra 20 minutes and just grill these poor kids. I mean, how, how dare you drop that ground ball mm-hmm. in your third grade rec league in the middle of nowhere, you know, <laughs> right. it's insane. But again, it comes down to really two things. It comes down to that identification level that these parents have these over-the-top levels of identification. Mm-hmm. But that doesn't mean that identification is bad, right? I mean, look, the last thing we need in this country is parents who care less about their kids, right? I mean, that's not the take-home message here. True. But we need parents to care more about their kids, but to do it in a different way. Don't, don't have your identification with your child athlete based on do they make the team or do they get the all-star nod or do they get a hit? Make your identification about that child's enjoyment or pleasure. Right. And so when I talk to parent groups, I say, look, when you buy your child a present for Christmas and that child opens up that present and that child is like, this is the best thing ever. The pride of a parent. I mean, we love that. Mm -hmm. It's not like the parents are yelling at him because they, you know, don't open the, the present that way. You got to take off the wrapping paper first or whatever, right? They're not criticizing that. They, they're identifying because of the child's enjoyment. We need to get to that. And when you do get to that, really good things happen. The other thing is, it's not just identification, right? That's one thing that we've learned about the past five to eight years. It's not just that parents have over-the-top levels of identification. They also are dysfunctional fans. These are These are people that they're just not very nice human beings. They are highly assertive, highly aggressive. Uh, they were bullies as kids. Mm. They just, they see sport and war as being very similar. Mm-hmm. And so they think that when they're, they're four or five or sixth grade kid goes out there to this little league ball game, that's a war. Well, guess what? It's not mm-hmm. right. It's, it's because if the parents weren't there, if they just showed up and gave the kids the equipment and the parents left, the kids are going to play anyway. They're also probably going to smile more, but they're going to play whether the parents are there or not. It's not war, but these dysfunctional fans, they just, they're all about confrontation and they're all about complaining and, and, you know, head to head. These are the fans that they're particularly likely to call in to sport talk radio shows, right? (laughs) They want to let the world know what's wrong with their team. Uh-huh. Okay, when, when you couple that with this high level of identification, you've really got, you got a recipe for, 
for some scary scenarios. And that's, that's what we found is those two things in combination in particular, um, you know, basically it's caring too much for the wrong reason and just not being a very good person. Mm -hmm. You, you mix those together. You've got a volatile scenario. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So really based on this explanation, based on your research, it shouldn't surprise us that people care more about little league than professional. Right? If we're looking at the team identification, um, tribal exactly. mentality piece of it, it's like, well, of course they're going to care more about Little League than they are going to be caring about uh, their professional team. Exactly. Well, and here's another point. And you can make more that of an impact. We, the, umpire, the umpire can hear you. At a little right. Umpire's not hearing you at a stadium. They're 10 feet away. And, yeah. and, and you feel they're like, also probably 14 years old. I get, there's no threat. Right? No. This person's going to do anything to you. Yeah. You got this freedom to say whatever, do whatever. Yeah. Exactly. Or, or at least you, you feel like you feel like you, know, you, a, you a, have that freedom. There's a felt right? freedom. Right. I, I just think that um, it, it's sometimes when the, the talking heads and that do the sport fan stuff, when we get together, we often end up talking about the, this sort of darker side of sport and, and it, including youth sport. And we're amazed that there aren't more incidents that occur, mm -hmm. right? <laughs> yeah. You know, that, that, that's also a takeaway message that given how many factors facilitate aggression you find in a sporting environment, right? Overall, most fans, including most parents are remarkably well-behaved, you know, that, but it only takes one. It just takes one to ruin it for everybody. Mm -hmm. That is a very good point. If we look at that uh, natural instinct of protection, you know, and you, then you're out there and you're watching your kid get pushed over or tackled or exactly. tagged out. Well, and, and, and let's think about it this way. <laughs> you, you go to these little league uh, games, particularly like the, the traveler, the elite games. Not only do the parents have replica jerseys on of their child, <laughs> Right. But I've seen some of those replica jerseys that the parents had their child autograph. Oh, my goodness. That's another. Now, one. what kind of pressure yeah. do you think that puts on the kid? And remember, a lot of a lot of sports fans have become disenfranchised, disgruntled, um, upset mm -hmm. with what's going on at the, the high college. Too much money. They, yeah, right. Right. And so it's like, well, professional athletes are greedy and they're always breaking the law and they never are loyal to their teams. They think that because professional athletes usually are greedy and they break the law and they're not loyal. <laughs> and, and so they're like, I, I can't I can't find the professional athlete that I love because I don't like what that has turned into. Uh -huh. Like how many people said, well, I'm never watching the NFL again, or I'm never watching the NBA again. Or after the well, they're still sports fans. Yeah. So they're now they're going to follow their kids team. I used to live and die for the Dallas Cowboys. Now I live and die for the, you know, uh, ex junior high school Cowboys. <laughs> yeah. oh, those poor kids, man. They, oh. Those poor kids. Right. Yeah. And I can't help but wonder if there's other research in addition to like what the other hobbies are of these parents. Like if they have some like a workplace that's more meaningful for them that they, you know, those sort of pieces of their life outside of, okay, it's Friday night, my kid's game, you know, countdown versus I had this other meaningful thing happen in my right. week up until I get to my kid's Friday night game. Yes. Uh, is, is the, literally the kid's, Friday night football game. But the highlight of their That's week. it. <laughs> yeah. Right. My, my ego is resting on this two and a half hour mm -hmm. time block. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a really good question. I guess I would say based on what we know about fan dysfunction and who these people are, if they do have other pastimes, they're probably not very nice people in those <laughs> other pastimes as well. Yeah. Um, that's, yeah. a, that's an intriguing empirical question. Yeah. And then what their experience was as a, as a kid, were they good players as a kid? Were they bad players as a kid? Were they frustrated? Were they, yeah, and so are they, they trying to live through their, their kid, parents? Vicarious kind of like, well, I was not good 
Yeah, I actually have, I have a graduate anybody. student. I have a grad student that's engaging in that uh, that as a study uh, this fall. She's going to see if the socialization process for dysfunctional uh, fans was different than for non-dysfunctional fans. Fans that are equally into their team, right. but those are dysfunctional. Those are non-dysfunctional. Was there something about how the dysfunctional fans learned what it meant to be a fan that's different? And maybe there is, or maybe they're just not nice people. We'll, we'll find out in about three months. <laughs> well, I'll be tuned in to find out that information. There you go. I have a hypothesis myself, but I'll be interested yeah, to see too. the research. <laughs> um, I think I could talk about this for a long time because it, uh, it connects two of my favorite things, which is... Um, social psychology and uh, uh, sports. So, and I know you could go on, but I don't want to take up more of your afternoon I, than you. I've been you. known to go for a while, <laughs> 36 years and counting. <laughs> yeah, you've got some stuff to draw from. But uh, I so appreciate you joining me here over Zoom. Absolutely. And um, talking about this. Yep, my pleasure. Thing, any lasting thing that you would want um, the listeners of this podcast to, to think about when it comes to sports fandom? Yeah, the last thing I would say is that if you're a sport fan and you're trying to figure out a way to enjoy your time as a fan more, the best piece of advice I can have is don't judge your team based on that team's last performance, right? Think about it more the whole year. Sometimes we think, well, my team lost the championship game. It was a bad year. Don't do that to yourself, you know? Don't do that. Enjoy the ride, not just the destination. And, and when fans do that, they tend to enjoy this pastime more. That is really good advice. And just like most things in sport, applies to life pretty well too, doesn't it? That's right. That's right. All right. Well, thank you so much for, uh, for joining me, Dr. Juan. I enjoyed it. My this. pleasure. Thanks for having me. This has been Mapping Healthy Minds, a podcast that explores the intersection of mental health and life. For more episodes, you can find the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, and we are also on social media sites, Facebook and Instagram. Website for the show is MappingHealthyMinds.com, which has access to all the episodes that we've recorded so far and a little bit more about the show. Thanks so much for listening, and if you enjoyed the show, give us a review or tell a friend. It's the best way for us to pass the word on to other people. Mapping Healthy Minds is brought to you by Compass Counseling and is produced and hosted by yours truly, Justin Lewis.